Morning, everyone. I'm kind of doing a sandwich sermon today. So we've had several weeks on a Tuesday with Reese on worship. And uh, we had one on worship yesterday. And then uh, tomorrow we've got Scott on, uh, well, I think something like out of Philippians 2 with the uh, condescension and emptying of uh, the second person of the Trinity and his being raised and given the name above every name. So my sermon's uh, wedged in between there uh, on, on the theme of praise. Um, another way of thinking about the sermon, it's, it's an unorthodox sermon, not theologically, but it's, it's uh, not strictly speaking part of a series uh, expanding several texts, but and it's not also a topical sermon in one sense. It's a, it's a series I'm doing on a form in the psalm. So we had, as you'll recall, I'm sure, my sermon on Psalm 29 from first semester. And, uh, <laughs> and now we're doing Psalm 113, another descriptive praise psalm where we're told to praise the Lord. And we're given certain reasons for praising the Lord. Uh, where do you worship? was a question put to a student friend of mine from another college in a past life. And uh, in that particular city, they had a view of worship which said that we don't go to church to worship. Yep, we go to be encouraged, to be taught, to build one another up. Worship, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, is about everything we do. And you worship just about everywhere except in church is uh, the way it went. And that got this guy into trouble because uh, he wasn't an Anglican uh, and he wanted to be a Presbyterian minister. So he went along to the interview with the Presbyterian moderator or whatever the senior figure was and the person said, so, so where do you worship? And he said, everywhere. And uh, the everywhere response was not taken very well, actually. <laughs> uh, because where you worship is, uh, as you'll see, a pretty good way of asking where you go to church. So a quick look at uh, a recent social media post to show you that this is still a relevant issue. So on my uh, thread, I see this from Ian Paul in the United Kingdom. Do we primarily meet on a Sunday to worship? So it's still an issue. What is worship and why worship? God. And they're the two questions that I think Psalm 113 answers so very well. So make sure you keep Psalm 113 open. Uh, We'll be moving through the passage and I think you'll see it answers those two questions very helpfully. So the key word in the first three verses is the word praise. And what we see from those first three verses of Psalm 113 is that we should praise God at all times and in all places, including chapel and uh, in church. And the word praise is, it's not a difficult word. It's, it's about an enthusiastic response to something amazing or awesome. Now, um, I'm in chapel, but my mind is actually on my long service leave just a couple of weeks ago, where I had six weeks off, and I don't do this very often. It's like once every 30 years we go to Europe for a holiday, so I'm not making, wanting to make anyone feel envious. But we did have uh, some great opportunities there to worship, and well, not so much worship, but to praise certain things. So you'd walk into King's College Chapel in Cambridge, and your response would be, wow. Uh, or St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, wow. Yep, or the Alps in Austria um, and in southern Germany. And, and that wow response was exactly Uh, what came out. So praise is a simple idea. It's this idea of a response 
of wow or enthusiasm to something awesome or amazing. And the object of praise here, as we've just sung, is the name of the Lord. See that three times. Praise the name of the Lord, let the name of the Lord be praised. From the rising of the sun to the place it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And, and the word Lord here is in capitals. Now, m- most of you have picked this up by now, but f- quickly for those who haven't, when it's in capitals, it's the divine name, so to speak. Back in Exodus, the name that God revealed to Moses, and it's what we call the Tetragrammaton, four letters in Hebrew, and the Jews didn't like pronouncing it, so they put in the vowels of Adonai over what we now think is probably pronounced Yahweh. You still with me? And, uh, um, and when we see it in capitals, it's God's personal name, so to speak, his covenant name, the name he revealed to Moses. And uh, um, it's very important. Sometimes you'll see Lord in, with a capital L in lower letters, and that's the Hebrew word for master or Lord as it's translated. Most modern Bible translations do the capitals, the one we've got here as L-O-R-D in capitals. Um, one went with Yahweh, the H HCSB, and uh, um, but the CSB <laughs> got rid of it and went back to Lord in capitals, which uh, I think is a good move. Now, um, what's the significance of that? Well, we praise the Lord as he revealed himself, the God of revelation and of promise, the God who has worked in history, the God who speaks and acts. And that self-revelation, that character, his actions as creator and redeemer are who we, we praise. So it's not simply a response to God, kind of uh, some mysterious figure, some unknown God, a kind of wow response. The praise we're told to engage in here is about uh, praising the God who made us and who redeems us. The God of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the God of Jesus Christ. And uh, um, uh, we're bound by covenant to him, and he's bound by covenant to us. That's the one we praise. And who's meant to praise? Well, it says his servants. See, in uh, verse 1, praise the Lord, you his servants. Could be the priests and Levites, could be the musicians, the choir. But I think in this context, it's, it's broader than that because of, as we'll see in the rest of the first three verses, it's much more universal, the praise. So the servants of the Lord are everyone who believes in the Lord. And in our day, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice, too, that it's servants of the Lord. And this is a bit cheeky, but I think you see my point. That praise is a corporate thing. Praise is to, begun, is to be done together. And I think that that's true to human experience. It's not that the Bible's against praising God on your own, but it does work better in a group. So if, if you're at a footy game and someone does something amazing, it's much better being at the game with the crowd than watching it on your own on television at home. And I was uh, happy, and, and mo- most people get to travel with others. So when we did our wow response in different parts of Europe. It was great to have Nat and Toby standing there and to look at Toby's face when he saw something amazing and that kind of enthused me in my sense of praise. And worship then for Christians is exactly that. It's a corporate recognition of something about God, the Lord whom we praise. 
Um, uh, now, where and when should we praise God? We also see that answered for us in these first three verses. In verse 2, uh, we're to praise God both now and forevermore. So we praise God at all times. Uh, we do so now and we will do so in eternity. And uh, uh, my hapless Presbyterian friend, in one sense, was right that we do praise God everywhere. But in another sense, he was wrong because there is still a more literal sense of worship and praise that's quite legitimate for believers to do together in our chapel and church services. So uh, where should we praise God? From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. In other words, in all places. So this is a universal uh, recognition of the need for the whole earth to praise God. You get the two opposites to indicate everywhere in between. From the east, where the sun rises, yep, to the west where it sets, and everywhere in between. So we are to praise God at all times and in all places. So if praising is the enthusiastic response to something awesome, what's so awesome about God? That's the question that gets answered so beautifully in the rest of the psalm. There are two reasons to praise God. The first is his greatness in verses 4 to 6, and then his grace in verses 7 to 9. So have a look at verses 4 to 6. Why should we praise God? Because the Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. So we praise God for his high and exalted position, uh, for his glory, which isn't just in heaven. Heaven in the Bible is the abode of God, where he lives, and, but sometimes it's the sky. So my Old Testament friends can help me here later. But it does feel like it's talking about the sky here, and he's even above the sky. Such is his exalted position. So we should praise God because he is incomparable. And the question there, who is like the Lord our God, of course, is answered by the words, no one. He sits in glory, in radiant light. No one is more honourable, no one more powerful. He has this innate and unrivaled authority and power and he reigns. That's what we see Uh, very clearly for us who sits enthroned on high and uh, um, he's exalted over all the nations now one of the tasks of biblical theology is to connect the testaments isn't it so sometimes it's easier than others and the central message of the Lord Jesus which most Christians know nothing about as it turns out is the kingdom of God yep the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven so you think well where in the Old Testament do we read about the kingdom of God kingdom of heaven and the answer is nowhere uh, because that phrase doesn't occur anywhere but as you well know concepts are bigger than words and the concept of the reign of God is right throughout the Old Testament so in Genesis 1 and 2 you've got the dominion of uh, God's vice regents Adam and Eve and then later on in Genesis you get a royal line introduced and then there are kings under God in Israel but the best part the best background for the kingdom of God is here in the Psalms because it's this universal reign 
that we see announced and which we praise. Who is like the Lord our God, who sits enthroned on high over not just Israel, but over all the nations? Uh, We praise God, friends, because of his greatness. Uh, My grandfather used to have um, give me advice whenever I saw him and uh, uh, it was often the same advice it was keep keep your head down so I'd talk about my studies he'd say keep your head down and we'd talk about my golf and keep your head down so <laughs> keep your head down was pretty much uh, what I got from my grandfather it's worked pretty well in different uh, circumstances but, but keep your head down is not what I'm saying to you today yep students, faculty it's very easy to keep your head down in our books and study isn't it and to be concerned about the things that are going on for us. But there's another sense in which we need to look up, and we need to continue looking up. So when we were on long service leave in Europe, we'd walk into a building. So we'd walk into King's College Chapel in Cambridge, and Toby would be admiring the seating and the walls. And I would say to him, look up. And that's what you see in King's College Chapel. He took the photo, actually. And uh, um, an extraordinary view. And the wow of our corporate praise is still with me. And uh, next shot, he also took this one, which I'm really proud of, actually. I like the kind of candle with the barbed wire and uh, all that happening. (laughs) Happened all over Europe. So we'd walk into uh, the Pantheon in Rome, and you'd have this amazing ceiling with a hole in the top. Just bizarre. So the, 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 uh, the, the rain would come in, and uh, it's now being used as a place of Christian worship, but it was for all the gods originally. And it's the biggest span ceiling uh, in human existence, um, and no one knows how they did it. So there are different theories, and the circle at the top is perfect. It's an extraordinary thing. So we'd walk in there, and Toby would be looking at the ground. I'd say, look up, and he'd look up, and we'd all get the same point. Yeah, one more looking up. So we walked into St. Peter's Basilica, and uh, there is a lot of looking up uh, going on there, and it wasn't so hard to look up at that point. So enough of the slides. Is there another one? No. Um, so, So, friends, that's my message to you today. Look up from your studies. Don't be a navel gazer and praise the name of the Lord specifically for his greatness because no one is like the Lord. He is so awesome. There's a second reason to praise the Lord and it's that we should praise God for his grace. The second uh, reason is in verses 7 to 9. It says, first of all, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. So uh, back in Israel and even in our day, this happens. So some people who are absolutely destitute uh, live on rubbish dumps and they uh, scavenge for things of value they can use or sell. This happens to this day, I believe, in Mexico City. and uh, uh, they would warm themselves by the smouldering fire and it was a place of dishonour and lacking in any dignity. And what the Lord does, this is one of the reasons we praise him because this is his signature move. He comes from up high above the heavens to the very lowest point in society and what does he do with them? He lifts the needy from the ash heap and he seats them with princes, the princes of your people. 
Now, he doesn't do this always, and he doesn't do this always immediately, but it's something he loves to do. And it's one of the big reasons, one of two big reasons, we should praise God. And it's something that he will do for all of us in the end, because all of us are destitute and in need and poor and dead is um, also true. And he raises us to life. So God's signature move is this kind of V-shape of steep condescension with a stunning rescue on the other side. He did it for Job. He did it for the nation Israel out of war and exile. He loves to do it. And its most amazing example, of course, is in the case of the Lord Jesus himself, who was in the grave and he was raised from the grave as Scott will talk about tomorrow, possibly, uh, to the uh, highest point, to have the name above every name. And he does that for us. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. So the V-shape is best seen in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in our second reading. Uh, A second example of why we should praise God for his grace is then given in verse 9. He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. So he takes the lowly barren woman, and in, in, in the ancient Near East in this time, that was a dire situation to be. Patriarchal society, women were dependent on males, and uh, on heirs um, to look after them in in old age and he settles them in a home surrounded by their own children as a happy mother of children in fact that line's taken straight out of 1 Samuel 2 where God does that for Hannah um, most famously in in the book of uh, Samuel so this is another work of the grace of the sovereign God God meets the needs of the oppressed and lowly, among whose number each of us is. We praise God, not just for his greatness, but for his grace. That's why we praise him at all times and in all places. Indeed, these two, greatness and grace, distinguish the God of the Bible, as far as I understand it, from just about every alternative. Because in Islam, for example, you don't expect God to condescend like that. Uh, The God of Islam is uh, the God of the Almighty, the one to whom you submit and obey. And that's pretty much where it's left. Um, Other gods uh, in the Greek and Roman uh, pantheon were uh, not so much transcendent, but pretty much imminent and fornicating with people on earth. Yep. So you had uh, that alternative, but they weren't transcendent. And those who were transcendent were not interested in human affairs. So just a bit of background here. The the gods in the Greek and Roman pantheon were self-absorbed. They focused their attention on themselves. Um, If they were deemed omnipotent, their power was seen as arbitrary. And if they were deemed omniscient, it was a kind of general knowledge. It wasn't that they knew anyone intimately or personally. In fact, Cicero writes about the Epicurean view of the gods, their life is the happiest conceivable. 
the one most bountifully furnished with all good things. God is entirely inactive and free from all ties of occupation. Neither does he labour, but he takes delight in his own wisdom and virtue. He knows with absolute certainty that he will always enjoy pleasures at once consummate and everlasting. Zeus, one of the almighty gods in the uh, ancient world, uh, is said by Siri, uh, Cicero to, uh, um, to attend to great matters and neglect small ones. Now, what a contrast with the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible who reigns from above the heavens, who comes down to the very lowest point in society and lifts the needy from the ash heap and takes the barren woman and settles her in a home, the happy mother of children. Even the way the question is framed underscores this God whom we praise. Who is like the Lord? Speaks of his greatness. But what's the rest of the question say? Our God speaks of his covenant uh, with us, that we become his people and he is our God. Who is like the Lord? Our God. And, and as uh, uh, Reese was covering yesterday with the Lord's Prayer, you even see it there. Our Father is about his grace. In heaven is about his greatness. If God were only great, that could evoke dread and fear. If God were only gracious, that could lead to disrespect and over-familiarity. But together they bring obedience and love and praise. The Lord our God sits enthroned, our Father in heaven, and that leads to a healthy and appropriate respect coupled with a heart of humble gratitude and obedience. So what then is worship? Worship is praising God in a group for his greatness and grace, for his lofty grandeur, his steep condescension, his kindness and love to the most needy. And Jesus encapsulates this perfectly for us because he is Emmanuel, God with us. And Psalm 113 is like Jesus' mission statement, if you like. That's exactly what he does for us. So friends, uh, in the midst of your studies and all that's going on in your lives, my exhortation today is not just to keep your head down, but to look up and to praise the God of grace and greatness. Not just to be gobsmacked at amazing things around that you come across, but to be gobsmacked when you think about how extraordinary the God of the Bible is, the God to whom we belong. He is our God. Remember that Paul, when he wrote his finest essay on uh, uh, the uh, election of Israel and the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 to 11, and theologians ever since have given that a high distinction, he doesn't end it by saying, yeah, baby, I nailed it. He ends it by saying, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. So our goal at college is not to figure out God, but to be awestruck incredulously and to have joyful confidence in God. It's to be blown away in wide-eyed, transfixed adoration to praise the incomparable God of greatness and grace. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. 
From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Amen.